just in my career thus far, the number of new drugs and the pathways that we're targeting has expanded so much. So it's a very exciting time in the kidney cancer space, but also a humbling time as we still have so much work to do. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg. Thanks for joining our ongoing series of talks with the top doctors and scientists here at the James. My guest today is Eric Singer, a physician scientist and the new division chief for urologic oncology at the James. Eric will fill us in on his background, give us an overview of the different types of urologic cancers, and some of the research and treatment advances that are leading to better and better outcomes for patients. Welcome, Eric. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. So we have a little bit of geographical similarity from the East Coast. I understand you're from New Jersey. So fill me in on a little on your upbringing and your family and what got you into science and medicine. Sure. Uh, I grew up in northern New Jersey, Passaic County, Pompton Lakes. Shout out to the Pompton Lakes Cardinals. <laughs> uh, and I did my first 18 years there and then spent the next... I like the way you said that. I did my first 18 years like it's a job. <laughs> yeah. I served my time. You said, okay. I <laughs> uh, spent 18 years there, then then went off and, and ended up spending 18 years uh, at some other great institutions for doing training, uh, college, medical school, graduate school, residency. And I had always loved science. And to think about it, I guess I would say I was 16 when I decided that medicine was going to be a career for me. I had... Uh, two shoulder surgeries sort of ended my my dreams of a football career which was probably for the better (laughs) uh, and was really impressed that I I was injured had surgery was able to be essentially fixed go back to doing what I really enjoyed doing and so that was really powerful and then after my my second (laughs) surgery I realized this is really not going the way it should and really uh, doubled down and getting involved with uh, science and healthcare, became a volunteer uh, in my town's first aid squad. So the Pompton Lakes First Aid Squad, Pompton Lakes Riverdale First Aid Squad, one of the first first aid squads, uh, started in 1935, and so got involved with that, uh, took an EMT course at the local hospital, and knew that that was what I was going to do. So you have this interest. You were in the first aid squad. Yeah. Where did you wind up going to college and deciding to go to med school? Yeah. So I went to Boston College in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, and had a fantastic four-year experience there as a biology major. That's where my interest in bioethics came about. And I also had the incredible opportunity to work in a surgical research lab at Brigham Women's Hospital and then also uh, in the uh, VA system there, and had incredible mentors, uh, including uh, doctors Dave Soybell and Bob Sema, who are both practicing surgeons to this day, who I stay in close contact with. And so it became very clear to me that surgery, again, was, was the thing for me. But I ended up doing a urology rotation, and I found my people. <laughs> I said, this is what I want to do. It's really fascinating surgery. It's amazing use of technology. It's long-term relationships with patients. 
really being able to change their lives and be a part of their lives. Uh, and that's when I knew that I was going to do urology with the goal of going on to be a urologic oncologist. Now, before we get more into that, something yeah. you said was interesting, how one of your mentors, the breast cancer mm -hmm. uh, doc, his connection and relationship with his patients and made me think that, yeah, you know, you know, maybe an orthopedic surgeon when you're doing a knee surgery or a shoulder, that's, of course, important, but cancer is life-changing and emotional, and you connect more with your patients and their family, and that might have been what you were seeing and wanted to be a part of. Yeah, I mean, I think the relationships, like you said, are both incredibly important uh, and deep, but I think the longitudinal part with it, you know, usually if you're having some other kind of surgery, it, it's a more finite, you're recovered, right. you're out doing what you need to do. You may not be seeing your orthopedic surgeon 10 years after your surgery. If things have gone well, you're discharged okay. and, and doing other things where it's really neat to be able to see patients, to get notifications of major milestones, marriages, birth of children, kids going to college. So, so that's a really special part of the relationship. Yeah, so you are attracted to the, having the yeah. ongoing relationship yeah. with your patients, which is something I think a lot of docs here like. So urologic cancer, there's not just one type. What are the different types and which one is now your specialty? Sure, so we, we cover a lot. So. Under the umbrella of urologic oncology, we have uh, kidney cancer, what we would call urothelial cancer, and that can involve the lining of the kidneys, the lining of the ureter, the lining of the bladder, which is often called bladder cancer, uh, prostate cancer, testicular cancer, penile cancer. Uh, many urologic oncologists also do work with adrenal tumors as well. So we really uh, see patients of many age groups, both men and women, lots of different entities, and we're able to offer lots of different treatments. And that's a really fun and exciting part of, of what we get to do. Now, which is your specialty? My, uh, my passion is kidney cancer. And uh, it's just uh, something that, that really fascinates me. And I've been involved with it for you know 10 years, really focusing on that. Not only the surgical side of it, but also working with our colleagues in medical oncology and radiation oncology, coming up with new treatments uh, and creating new clinical trials so we can try to advance the field, improving yeah. not only survival, uh, but also quality of life and, and patient outcomes. So that's a really important thing to me and a big part of why I wanted to join the James uh, is the, the great group of collaborators and outstanding group of clinicians we have here, our surgeons, our docs, uh, physician, medical oncology, radiation oncology, and also our incredible, incredible group of advanced practice providers, NPs, PAs, and our nurses. Um, social work, the whole gamut uh, really comes here to focus on the patient and really let us offer the best care anywhere. You said something I want to follow, on, follow yeah. up on after our break, and that was why you came here. So I want to learn a little sure, more about sure, that. Sure. But first, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Eric will fill us in on why he left Rutgers and New Jersey, his, his home state, to come to the middle of America and lead the urologic division here at the James. In today's world, misinformation abounds. But at the Ohio State Health and Discovery website, 
we're addressing today's most relevant health, wellness, science, and research topics, all from the Ohio State experts you can trust. We're tapping into physicians, scientists, and thought leaders across our medical center and health sciences colleges to give you the deeper story behind the headlines and the truth about the topics affecting the health of individuals, society, and the world. Visit health.osu.edu today. We're back with Eric Singer, the new division chief of urologic cancer here at the James. And right before the break, I think we should talk about you being new here and what made you. You had a very prominent role at Rutgers, a a very good cancer hospital. What made you decide to to uproot you and, I don't know, your family? What is Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, so so uh, my wife, who, who's a nurse practitioner, who also works at the James, uh, and we have uh, two children who are in middle school here. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a big life choice, but it was also, I'd say, surprisingly easy And that we had a fantastic, fantastic career at Rutgers, and it was a great 10 years, love the people, still stay in touch with them weekly, daily. Uh, but this was really an opportunity to grow uh, as a surgeon, as a clinical trialist, and as a leader. And I was incredibly drawn to the culture of the James, as that really being palpably different than many other places around the country. It reminded me very much of my years as a fellow at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, where the focus really so much is on the patient, uh, on what they need, on answering important questions about cancer, prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and how we can move those things forward to benefit our patients, their families, and our community. So it was really a lot of alignment in terms of what the values are, and then I'd say that really the other big draw was, uh, was my boss. It's, it's, it's a unique opportunity when you get to pick your boss. And so to be able to come and work for Dr. Cheryl Lee is really great. So she's a phenomenal uh, physician leader, a urological oncologist, bladder cancer specialist, and someone who I learn from every day. And my goals and her expectations were very much aligned in terms of what we're looking to do for the urologic oncology program here at the James. And so it was a, a, a pretty quick conclusion that this was the right place at the right time for us to come. Now, you mentioned your wife is yeah. a nurse practitioner mm-hmm. at the James. Yeah. Does she have a specialty? or She's a- um, working in the with the inpatient solid tumor program. So it, it's covering various, lots of different disease sites, but solid tumors. So not what we call liquid tumors, so lymphoma, leukemia. She had done that for a decade, uh, and now she's doing, you know, working with the solid tumor folks. So it sounds like your your two kids may not have any choice in which direction they're going to go. <laughs> I don't know. The, 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 <laughs> or they may rebel against it. <laughs> I think they're having a, I think they're doing fantastic, adapting, and... It'll be fascinating. It's going to be exciting to see what they do. I know they'll do it with great passion, and it's going to be a thrill to watch them do great things. Can they explain the different types of cancer treatment? They're, they're getting they, really good yeah. at reading CT scans. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, yes, we, we, we do have, um, my daughter has a 
you know, small mannequin that has all the different organs and things in it. Uh, and she, she named it Meredith after Meredith Grey, the star of Grey's Anatomy. Oh. So not exactly uh, <laughs> biographical, uh, but uh, but interesting. Okay. That is a big adjustment for the family. And so hopefully it sounds like yeah, you guys have made it time. really well. So now let's talk about kidney cancer, yeah. your specialty. And like so many other types of cancers, here at the James, we have several specialists who only treat patients, only do research, clinical trials on kidney cancer. So what's, what's new in terms of treatments? I know you're involved in some clinical trials. What's, what, what are you working on? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I can remember being a resident during my research year when the first papers came out about sunitinib and serafinib, the very first uh, TKIs, targeted kinase inhibitors that target VEGF, the vascular endothelial growth factor, that's a real driver in kidney cancer. Now, is that an immunotherapy? So this is a targeted therapy. Ther these were not pills. Tar okay, targeted. Yep. So these were pills, and you know this was December 2005, January 2006, those first papers came out. And just in my career thus far, the number of new drugs and the pathways that we're targeting has expanded so much. So it's a very exciting time in the kidney cancer space, but also a humbling time as we still have so much work to do. Yeah. So we've done a lot of work in coming up with new therapies for what we call clear cell kidney cancer, the most common type of kidney cancer. But that only accounts for about 75, 80% of cases. And so there's still a large number of patients who have non-clear cell kidney cancer and we really need to do more work to come up with some better treatments for them. What, what, what does that mean, clear cell kidney cancer? Yeah, so imagine uh, kidney cancers like ice cream and you can have different flavors. And same thing, clear cell is the vanilla. It's the most common. Uh, but then we also have other types of kidney cancer, uh, papillary, uh, chromophobe, translocation. So lots of different but flavors that you can get. And uh, we need to do a better job of matching our treatments with the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of those specific kinds of tumors. Okay, so it's so different types of kidney cancer require different treatments because they have different drivers and mutations that are causing them. Correct. Okay. So what are some of these new things you're 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 working on to do that? Yeah, so in the in the clear cell space, we've gone like you mentioned with immunotherapy also. And so many patients who uh, years ago, we only would have given one drug to at a time. These were patients who have kidney cancer that's spread to other places, metastatic disease. We're now often treating them with two drugs at a time, uh, either two different immunotherapy drugs or one immunotherapy drug and one targeted therapy drug. So we're finding that uh, adding medicines is helping patients live longer. One of the things that I'm very interested in is seeing how we can best treat patients whose kidney is still present, but they're found to have disease in other places. So metastatic kidney cancer, but the kidney's still in place. So what's the role of surgery? What's the role of timing medicines? Which medicines? How many medicines? How long with medicines before and after surgery? 
So we call that cytoreductive surgery. So we have a clinical trial that's opening up here right now um, that we're, we're looking at that exact thing. One of the other things that we've done a lot well, with... In, in that clinical trial you just mentioned yeah. with the timing. Yeah. So you're now, you're now giving patients medicines before surgery. Is that new? That, that yeah. So it used to be um, in, in papers that came out 2000, 2001 that first showed a benefit for what we call cytoreductive nephrectomy. So the patient has kidney cancer. It's spread to other places. Okay. We can do surgery to remove that kidney, but we know it's not curative because there's still it's cancer el it's other elsewhere. places. Yeah. But there's been lots of studies that showed a benefit. So getting rid of that big tumor, not entirely sure why, but it makes the other things respond better or makes the drugs work better. So whether it's something being secreted by that big tumor or somehow that big tumor is changing the patient's immune system, uh, or just alleviating the symptoms from having a really big tumor can be a benefit. The thinking used to be that either we'd start you on medicines and just leave you on medicines forever and you'd never have surgery, or we'd give you surgery, try to get you recovered, and then put you on medicines. What we're looking at now is giving you medicines for three months, doing the big surgery to remove that primary tumor, and then putting you back on the medicine shortly after surgery. So it's not so much a change in exactly what we're doing, but can we give the order of the treatments in a smarter way, a way that's going to let the body, uh, through the immune system, through the targeted therapies we're giving, uh, fight that cancer better and more efficiently. Because when it metastasizes from the kidney and goes other places, surgically removing it may not be the option, so you have to treat yeah, it Yeah, it medicine. really depends on, and, like you said, the, the where it is and how yeah, much of it is. So and how if invasive. It's, if it's just one spot, we could think about watching it. If it's a very tiny thing and it's not going to cause any problems, do surveillance for a while. See if it's growing, if it needs to be treated. It could be radiated. It could be ablated thermally with interventional radiology. We could give medicines that go all throughout the body. We could even remove that spot. Uh, but again, it's trying to balance what we need in terms of tumor biology and how can we best you know, support our patients. Most of the time, we're looking at patients who have multiple spots. So we're talking about surgery followed by systemic therapy, medicines that are going to go everywhere to treat wherever that cancer might be. Okay. So that's that clinical trial. Mm -hmm. What's another example? Yeah. Another thing that we're looking at is the idea of adjuvant therapy. So if a patient has an aggressive tumor that, as far as we can tell, hasn't spread anywhere else, and we remove that tumor... What should we do next? Should we continue to just follow that patient closely? And if it, the cancer pops up again or recurs, comes back, yeah. treat them at that point? Or do we want to say, we know your tumor looked like a bad actor. Let's see about giving you medicines right away with no evidence of there being any cancer anyplace to see if we can reduce the risk of that cancer coming back. A number of years ago, there was a, a study that got uh, the, the medicine I mentioned again from one of the first ones approved, sunitinib, that was approved as an adjuvant therapy, but very toxic and not a whole lot of benefit. So not a popular drug, really hasn't been used much. 
Much more recently, there was a different drug that was approved uh, that works through the immune system, and uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, potential benefit with that. We're still waiting to see and figure out exactly which group of patients are going to be best suited, be get the most benefit from that drug, and will it improve their survival? And another important thing for us to think about is also identifying potentially patients who may be at higher risk of side effects or toxicity. Oh. So same thing, if I have this group of information and say, okay, you're at high risk for having it come back, you're at very good risk of responding, and here's somebody else who's at very high risk of having a bad outcome because of a side effect, we need to take those things into account when we're making our treatment recommendations. So we're not there yet, but that's one of the things we're working on. Wow, there's so many factors and, and yeah. things that you need to study and make sure work before yeah. you, can, you can give them and, to and patients. And so we now, you know, yeah. that, that trial uh, was uh, pembrolizumab study. That was done. We're now uh, a site for the sort of second version of that, which is using adjuvant therapy, not just with one medicine, but two medicines that work in very different ways to see if that can provide benefit as well. So we just uh, enrolled a patient on that study, uh, just started him on treatment yesterday. That term adjuvant. 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 What exactly does that mean? Yeah. So, so adjuvant means that we're giving it to you because we think it's a good idea, but we don't see any evidence of disease there. Okay. So there's nothing on a scan. There's nothing on a blood test. There's nothing for us to say, we know that there's cancer somewhere. But what we're doing is saying, we know from your pathology report that you're at high risk of having it come back. That people so can with we, your type of cancer, right, can we, have, it comes back at a higher rate. Right. Let's take a precaution now rather than wait till it spreads. Right. Of course, the flip side of that is we're going to treat a lot of patients, many of whom would never need anything. And so how do we balance that risk of overtreatment and side effects, toxicities, adverse events, versus the potential benefit of reducing that risk of recurrence? So that's something we really have to grapple with, not only the toxicities of the side effects of drug, having to keep coming back to the doctor's office, taking time off from work, care for family members. So there's a lot of toxicity yeah. outside of just medical toxicity, but also financial toxicity that goes into this. And the only way to do this is clinical trials. That's the, that's it. And, and yeah. these patients who enroll in these clinical trials are kind of heroic. Uh, not kind of, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 our, our patient volunteers and their families, that they're the ones who drive the change. This is without their uh, altruism, and and bravery and commitment to science, we wouldn't be making these advances. Now, I want to take a little step back, and as yeah. we're talking about the kidney and removing parts of it mm -hmm. that's diseased, how much can you remove for the kidney to still function? And then if you move, can you remove it all and then dialysis can be used? Like, how does that work? Yeah, so fortunately we have two kidneys. So that makes my job yeah. a lot okay. easier most of the time. And is it usually one that's cancerous? Usually. Okay. Sometimes we have both, and we even sometimes have patients with uh, hereditary cancer syndromes. Well, they'll get what we call yeah. bilateral multifocal tumors. 
So uh, an example of that is uh, VHL or von Hippel-Lindau syndrome. And so that affects kidneys and you can get lots of tumors in them. And so the way we treat patients is that we would do partial nephrectomies. So just removing tumors, saving as much of the good kidney as possible. Uh, and then we have patients who, um, again, you know, learning from uh, Dr. Linehan and Dr. Brodslavsky at the NCI uh, when I was a fellow there, you know, we can remove multiple, you know, dozens of tumors and even do that multiple times over a patient's life uh, and still have them with adequate kidney function. For a lot of what we're talking like cytoreductive surgery, most of the time that's removing an entire kidney just because the tumor is so it's large, there. There, there's not you know, enough of the normal stuff to leave behind. Uh, we'd be worrying that we'd be leaving you know, more cancer behind. But you can function with one. You can function with even less than one. And, oh, so okay. we, we like to leave as much as we can. Um, but even in patients who have a solitary kidney, so they were only, you know, they were only born with it or they had prior surgery that removed one, uh, we can still do partial nephrectomies in that case as well. We had the challenge of, of having several family members affected by cancer and yeah. seeing that growing up and seeing, you know, the challenges when things aren't going well, but also how incredibly powerful it is when, you know, you get really fantastic humanist physicians and nurses taking care of your loved ones, how, how special that is. So, you know, wanted to be a, a doc and a surgeon oncologist that, you know, my sister would be proud of, that my grandfather and grandmother would be proud of, my uncle would be proud of. So, you know, to, to sort of uh, show and emulate the fantastic care that they got and be able to pay that forward. So your own family, has, several members have been on their own cancer journeys, I, yeah. you're saying? So. Yeah, so, so sort of early on, and uh, I think that was sort of what originally I, I wasn't interested in oncology because of those very intense personal experiences seeing you know, my aunt, my sister, my you know, grandparents, uh, uncles, but... As I grew older and got to meet more and more people, I sort of came to realize that, yeah, that that is as hard as it can be, that those are really special relationships. And uh, it was just ultimately a realization that, yes, I want to be part of those special relationships, even though it can be heavy. How, how did your sister do? Uh, she ended up passing away uh, uh, from, from from ovarian cancer. Wow. Uh, and... You know, seeing her go through it and how amazing her her husband, my brother-in-law, and and their kids did. Um, you know, both of course heartbreaking, but also so inspiring. And the advocacy work that that he's done, and the community, the cancer community, and just the community in general that supported them uh, is amazing. So it's in many ways why I'm so excited to participate in, in my first Pelotonia coming up, to be part of yeah. that community uh, that, that gives back and helps support the important work that all of our cancer team members are, are doing. Well, I'm very sorry about your sister, yeah. but it's kind of a great tribute that you say that in every patient you see her and your other relatives and give them the care that you would want that they got. So. Yeah. 
That's amazing. And who, um, Let's talk a little bit about your role as, as chief of urologic sure. oncology. You came here from a great job at Rutgers, and you said for, for bigger opportunities. So talk a little about that opportunity and your vision for, for the future of the department. Yeah, so it's an exciting time in our division. So I am the eighth surgeon, and we just re uh, recruited another surgeon who will be joining us this summer. And we have a couple other ongoing recruitments. So we're going to be in double, digit, double digits uh, very soon. It's also a time of great growth in our partner divisions. Medical oncology has hired some fantastic new faculty. Uh, radiation oncology is expanding with a new proton beam facility yeah. uh, that, that's going to be opening up on the West Campus, uh, James Ambulatory Center. So it's just a fantastic time to be here and to have this influx of such immense talent and commitment that super excited to get up every morning uh, and, and come into work. So like you said, where are we going? Continue to develop clinical trials. So not only have trials that are being offered around the country, but also to have our own scientists, our own investigators developing their own. Uh, we call those investigator-initiated trials, really the, the foundational building block of what we do here and what the James is so great at supporting, being able to offer innovative clinical trial options for patients with every disease site at every stage of disease is ultimately our goal so that anyone who comes here to see us is going to get a great first or second, third opinion, whatever it is. We're gonna be able to offer them standard of care treatments that they could get anywhere, as well as a portfolio of clinical trials, uh, special things that may not be available anywhere uh, and be you know, unique to what it is here at the James. As you grow, and because there are specialists in all these different types of urologic cancer, you're getting patients from all over Ohio and beyond. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say that our, what they call the catchment area, um, certainly, I mean, this week alone, I've seen patients from West Virginia, uh, Indiana, all across the Midwest, and uh, even, uh, nice to say that uh, I even have some, some patients from New Jersey who have followed me out, <laughs> oh. uh, who still, okay. still come uh, for, for some, for some follow-up visits, so, so it's great to see them. So You don't, you don't make house calls for them? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's tougher. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I would say that our certainly our reach is growing. Yeah, and that's just you know, again another sign of the great things that are happening here. When you recruit someone, which you're now mm -hmm. doing, what do you look for? So, uh, incredible passion and commitment to being a great surgeon. Uh, someone who's going to you know, always be thinking, how does this benefit the patient? Intellectual honesty is incredibly important. You know, we don't ever want to fool ourselves by thinking this is a great thing or we don't need to check it or we don't need to do a clinical trial. We know this is better. We need to make sure that we're not just jumping to conclusions or making assumptions. Uh, and then you know, finding folks who are going to be good colleagues and good partners. And we want a group of people who really care about the development of all of our faculty and staff, in addition to the patient care, not just people who are gonna share the same mailing address. We don't want that. We want really great team members. 
I think you might have just described yourself as a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so well, thank you. Well, thank you for sharing this. And again, you're 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 fairly new, so good luck as you as you continue to get acclimated and grow your department and bring in great people and do great work. Thank you so much, Steve. Great to be here with you. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.